When it comes to profound personal growth, nothing compares to the experience of travel. Impact Safari is a unique and intimate leadership journey for those looking for transformative experiences in some of the world's most remarkable and powerful places. From the rainforests of Tasmania to Israel, Palestine, Bhutan and beyond, Impact Safari will transport you into a space of expansion and deep connection. Explore their upcoming trips at impactsafari.com and embark on a once in a lifetime journey. I think there's definitely an opening now and it's similar to the COVID pandemic in the sense that the opening's happening because we're in such a crisis. So when I'm speaking to leadership teams or on boards of organizations, because people are so stressed and often on the edge of burnout or recovering from burnout, there's an openness to talk about these issues around inner leadership as they relate to well-being. It kind of gives people permission to turn inwards a little bit, which probably wasn't there 10 years ago. Hello, and welcome to the Dumbo for the podcast. We've got Dr. Julia Kim with us today. She is the program director of the Gross National Happiness Centre in Bhutan. Long-time readers and listeners of Dumbo Feather will be familiar with the GNH framework, which many organisations, cities, communities around the world have implemented to shape a more sustainable and holistic vision of their success. Julia shares more on that and why Bhutan is such a rich place for leadership exploration and contemplation in this chat with Small Giants Academy Head of Programs, Tamsin Jones. I can't help but think about the moments when we were together in person in Bhutan, having a beautiful week-long discussion around gross national happiness. And I remember flying in, and um, I don't know if anyone's flown into Bhutan, but you come very close to the mountains. It is, you know, you're in a small plane and you're flying in. And I remember this white knuckle moment um, thinking, okay, this is beautiful, but, you know, you come in and you land and, And I'd come into Bhutan, you know, from a really busy time in my life where I was feeling quite disconnected and burnt out. And I think the irony was not lost on me to come into explore happiness at a centre for growth happiness with a place where I was really disconnected from that and so curious coming in. And then I think the first moment that we really met properly was around a circle in Bhutan together. And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about what it means for you to take people into the space of gross national happiness and and into Bhutan as a society and a country. Most people who end up coming to Bhutan are carrying a question, whether they know it or not. It's interesting. And there's something about the environment and the hosting of a program that allows that question to surface. Sometimes it can be like big and life-changing, as you said, the 20 years of my life, the direction I want to be going. Other times it can be very intimate and personal, you know, just about how am I relating to my own sense of purpose and meaning in the world? Am I happy? Um, Am I contributing in a way that I think serves um, in the best way possible? So there's something about the country and the place that honors that honesty and creates a landing space for you to go deep 
And that's really the joy of bringing groups Bhutan into really being able to host these kinds of programs with you. So when you came to Bhutan, were you carrying a question? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And have you, have you answered it? I didn't know it at the time, but I was carrying a question that was a bit about how do I integrate these different pieces and parts of me into the work that I'm doing so that it doesn't feel like Lego set where I'm adding pieces and sometimes I have to take off one piece because it doesn't seem to fit the situation. So my background was in medicine and then public health and working for about 10 years in South Africa, then finding myself at the United Nations and working more at that global policy level with a little bit of a side trip into exploring my spiritual path and meditation quite deeply, going into a a retreat and really wondering how do I bring these things together? When I had the chance to hear about gross national happiness at the UN, to meet the prime minister, Jigme Tinle at the time, it really opened up a huge sense of curiosity for me because to me, the idea of progress and development, whether you're talking about individual development the growth of an organization or a business, or how a whole country is developing. Really, the question of what is the purpose of that development is at the center of it. So I think I was carrying that question for myself at the time. What is it about my own growth, my own development as a human being, as a professional, that feels a little bit not quite like it's in sync yet, but wants to be? And how can that connect the work that I'm doing And then this gradually started to come together as the Gross National Happiness Center, an NGO in Bhutan that was trying to really share and develop and co-learn around measuring happiness and well-being and bringing it into organizations, bringing it into different settings, along with others outside Bhutan. So that became the exploration and it's ongoing. And there's probably new questions that come up in different layers all the time. Mm, I love that. So there isn't a consistency or the intention of these systems, whether they're the UN, which have honourable intentions in some senses, but maybe there are ways that it needs to evolve and change. And this country and context provides a deep example where development isn't GDP, gross domestic product, it's gross national happiness. And that feels quite radical in the world we live in. Mm. It would probably be helpful just to get a sense from you of what is gross national happiness? Is it like GDP? What is this different intention that sparked your interest in this question? How does gross national happiness get integrated into daily life beyond the academic or the conceptual or the intention? And I've got mm. a few questions there, but I'd love for you to give a bit more of a sense for people around that possibility for an immersive experience. Sure. You know, one of the first questions people usually ask is, what do you mean by happiness? Because it's a word that can mean so many different things to different people, has a lot of cultural flavorings to it. I think it's safe to say it's not just the happy mood, the smiley face that people think about. That kind of happiness is fleeting and unpredictable, and certainly you can't guide a country using that as a barometer. I really love the definition of happiness that the first prime minister brought to the UN. And he said, true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer, but comes from serving others, living in harmony with nature, and coming to know our own innate wisdom. 
So it's quite a deep and profound definition of happiness. And you'll hear that it's quite relational. It's not me and my individual corner of happiness I'm going to try and protect from the world. It's how do I relate to myself, my own purpose, to others in society, and even to nature, to the, the planet as a whole. So if you take that as your North Star, or I guess Southern Cross, we're talking Australia, as a guidepost, then it changes how you think about development. So GDP growth, which is the unspoken guidepost for how countries measure their development, rising inequality can happen while GDP is going up. It measures a lot of things that are destructive to the environment. So gross national happiness takes it further and says, can we have a more holistic measure to use as a barometer that encompasses all the things we know are important to that sense of deep well-being and happiness and are actually sustainable on a planet with finite resources. So it includes some of the things that you would expect to see, like education, living standards, health. Everyone agrees those are important. But a lot of things that countries don't measure and that GDP certainly ignores, like time use, on what we would think of as work-life balance, but actually goes way more beyond that. Psychological well-being, community vitality, how close are our com communities, are the cultures flourishing and diverse? Those are the things that get measured in the GNH survey. And then it gets rolled out over time. So you would do a survey every three to four years and see how the country is moving according to those nine domains. It would allow you to track what's happening between men and women. How are women doing in those nine domains compared to men? occupational groups, age groups. And then importantly, it should also inform how the country is making policy. So making decisions, not just looking at will it improve GDP growth, but what will it do for inequality? What will it do for culture and community or time use? And then try to make policies that align with maximizing GNH rather than just GDP. So it's multi-layered, multi-levels. And I would say there's more interest now in saying, how can we bring that kind of thinking and holistic measurement, not just to a country level, but even to cities, to municipalities, to businesses, to organizations? Because that same principle, prioritizing well-being and not just economic growth, I think is really important in all those different settings. Mm, I love that. And there is, I guess, this moment in time where, We've had to grapple with huge shifts in the way we work and live. Yes. And COVID and the impacts of COVID on various things. We start to sort of really understand that these questions, as we slow down, of what is actually a good life, what is a good society, how are we connecting with our family and our communities, became much more prominent. And we started to see leaders around the world that were more leading with empathy mm. as those leaders that were the ones doing, I think, the best in managing the pandemic. So you saw both an inner shift in an understanding of what is a good life, but also this sense of what makes a good leader, what makes a good society. And mm. when you start looking at these measures and ways of thinking, how do we collect this data? How do we think about how to measure it? How do we is the work that's been done in Bhutan permeating into other places and in what ways, especially given now there's this awareness and deep sense of their GDP just isn't enough to measure? 
Yeah. In some ways, I think you're exactly right, Tams. And it's an exciting time in the sense that um, because of COVID and the breakdown of the systems that we're in, we're seeing some light coming through in terms of possibilities. If we start deciding that we want to measure things differently, and if we want to prioritize those, how do we make it happen in our communities? How do we bring that alive? I love how you talk about the inner dimensions. I think that's so important in terms of the leadership. We all have personal examples of where new policies and new measurements come along. And if your heart's not really in it, if the leadership also is not really embodying it, then it just becomes another set of metrics that you try to tick off the boxes and it doesn't really lead to change. So I think one of the things that's maybe unique about gross national happiness in the conversation about measuring progress differently is the idea that inner transformation as well as systems transformation are both important. So the inner conditions of leaders, their mindset, their vision is as important as getting the right policies and measurements in place. The two go hand in hand. So how do you cultivate both of those? Some recent ideas that I've been working through with a colleague, Julie Richardson, who's at Plymouth University, these ideas came together when we were working together in Bhutan on GNH programs. The idea that there's different ways that we can think about data, what you might think about as cold data, warm data, and hot data. Cold data and warm data are ideas that have been put forward by Nora Bateson at the International Bateson Institute. And cold data, you could think of as just the facts, objective data, measurable, it's out there. It's how we think about surveys comes from the tradition of Newtonian science, subject, object. We know that's not the complete story. So warm data starts talking about relationships, more qualitative aspects. We're measuring something that's beyond just the facts. And I think that's also an important aspect of how we bring about change in organizations and communities. And I think hot data, which Julie and I have been trying to conceptualize a bit more, brings in that aspect of inner leadership. So the ability to pay attention, to sense into something that is starting to emerge in the relationships. So if warm data comes from this idea of complexity science and understanding relationships, then hot data would come from contemplative science and contemplative practices, the ability to be aware of what's happening, what's emerging, the nature of the relationships, and then be able to shape them to be able to move with them in order to bring change. And here are some of the tools that you might draw on, include some of the ones we've talked about in Bhutan before, Otto Sharma's work with uh, Theory U and Presencing, a lot of the practices around contemplative awareness, the inner development goals, this whole idea of inner leadership and how we interact with the data and with the relationships. I think that's really important when we think about bringing about change because it's quite unpredictable and it's almost a dance. We make a step forward, things move in a different direction. You have to be able to move with the changes and still keep your intention and focus. So I think that's a dimension of thinking about how we work with information, with data. That's also about cultivating our inner leadership, our ability to respond and to pay attention. I wonder how that sits with you. It's a, a mouthful to think about. Oh, I love it. I love it. 
I remember before going to Bhutan, I had been working a lot with women around the world in boardrooms. And you think maybe when you get to that level, you'll feel really comfortable to share your deeper truths. And often in these boardrooms, there was not any space for that. And so I actually read the Harvard Leadership Theory and Practice of book cover to cover saying where is Mm -hmm. where is this where where is this it's beyond emotional intelligence it's it's an intuitive sense it's a relational way of being and really what we're dealing with is deep complexity in many senses one of the memories I have of being in Bhutan was some of the contemplative moments meditations and how does that feature in Bhutan as a part of this complex system of cultivating the conditions for happiness? Is the inner that you've described integrated into society and in what way? Mm. And are there any things we can learn outside of Bhutan that we could apply in our own lives? That's a great question, Tamsin. You know, I think on one level you could say that Bhutan has the benefit of being able to draw on a rich tradition of contemplative practice from the Buddhist roots that have permeated the country from very early times. It's also been trying to bring that into the education system in a secular way to bring mindfulness at very young ages. Some of the schools that we would visit in Bhutan, you would see how the kids are trying to do that. But beyond that, I would say it's also an understanding of what is the relationship between nature and others. From a young age, a lot of Bhutanese would have a sense of interdependence or karma, a feeling that we're not in our little isolated bubbles, but how we interact with each other, our intentions, our thoughts, our emotions are as important as what we do in the world. So that sense of awareness of interdependence becomes really important when you talk about some of the complex crises we're facing now, COVID being one example that really brought to light our interdependence. That awareness is in some ways from the grassroots up in Bhutan, but all that to say it's not a Shangri-La either. I mean, you would see as you went into Timpu that there's more building happening, there's more uh, cars on the road, Young people are having to deal with social media and the influx of new ideas that's coming in. So I think to have and to draw on that foundation and to be able to bring it into the challenges of modern life, that's something that all of us are struggling with. It's something that we're all trying to do in our day-to-day lives, which I think is a really important lesson in Bhutan and beyond. Mm. I think that we're all grappling, right, with this idea of stolen focus, that the things that we scroll or there to distract us or a consumer-oriented society, you need enough contemplative moments to balance those other moments out that are quite unconscious in many respects. It's a big challenge. I was listening on the radio in Australia to a story that was talking about meditation in schools and that they were measuring how it took very little scrolling on social media to undo that beautiful clarity of thought. I think this is a huge question about how we sustain well-being, how we ensure young people are able to remain centred and our education system is needing to evolve to respond to that and it's very challenging. In Bhutan, being able to go in and meet the teachers and see the classroom practices and be there really gave a strong sense of the grounding of that Are you seeing that there's ways that these ideas are being more 
integrated into leadership as well. Are there really good practices around being more conscious as leaders? I think there's definitely an opening now, and it's similar to the COVID pandemic in the sense that the opening is happening because we're in such a crisis. So when I'm speaking to leadership teams or on boards of organizations, because people are so stressed and often on the edge of burnout or recovering from burnout, there's an openness to talk about these issues around inner leadership as they relate to well-being. It kind of gives people permission to turn inwards a little bit, which probably wasn't there 10 years ago. And even if it is a little bit attached to this idea of performance and professional competency, at least it's the opening of a door to have the kinds of conversations where you can talk about what is the quality of attention that you can bring to conversation like you and I are having right now. Are we actually listening into each other, actually starting to feel each other even through a laptop computer? Or are we listening with the intention to just try and find a problem with the other person's argument or just waiting till you finish talking so that I can say what I want to say? And these practices can be cultivated. They're linked to the ability of a team to really connect and innovate. They're really linked to a sense of well-being and personal fulfillment. And now there's more space to talk about it. I think they're critical to how we think our way through really complex problems in a non-binary way. Most of the issues and challenges we're facing now, whether we're talking about climate change, rising inequality, social tensions, they can't be approached with an idea that this is a zero-sum game, that I'm somehow trying to think my way out of this issue so that I'll be able to be the winner and protect what I have. Because we're so interdependent, We have to be able to think about a problem and its solution as we. We have to be able to soften the boundaries between me and you, us and them, because a solution has to encompass all of us. So that isn't learned overnight, especially when we're bombarded with social media and with messages that make you feel constantly in fear, in competition mode. When I've come back to North America to visit friends and family, I didn't even know what this phrase FOMO meant before, fear of missing out. No matter what you have or how much you're doing, there's this niggling feeling that somewhere you're missing out on some opportunity or some experience. And that leads to a constant sense of impoverishment, even in the midst of plenty. And so how does that drive our consumption and our feeling that we are not enough and that we're not happy? So I think that's also interestingly, at the root of the climate crisis that we're in. It's an inner crisis as well as an environmental crisis. And I think these inner leadership skills, these capacities, they have the potential to enhance our sense of flourishing and well-being personally and to help us think about how do we really look at the root causes of some of the complex crises we're in the midst of right now. Mm. So I love that we're having this conversation and it feels like these things start to make more sense intuitively Once you're embodying them, once you're in Bhutan, once you're having these conversations, you start to see the connections between these patterns in your own life. And it comes back to you like a mirror in a different way. Mm. Yes, I had many experiences of the mirror in Bhutan. (laughs) It was pretty extraordinary to be able to sit and speak with a high school teacher and a family living in a rural area and understanding 
and experiencing deeply how they live on their lives and why they decide to live that way, as well as business people, you sort of see that you are holding through the structures of Bhutan in these different domains, quite a lot of space for debate and conversation, back to this interconnection of all of these areas when it's seen as a balance, Mm. as a supportive environment for there to be dialogue and greater engagement around what the future should look like beyond just one little piece. It can become like this extraordinary complex conversation rather than this siloed approach. Hmm. One of the conversations I remember very deeply in me was one around time. Now I remember you guiding me saying time is as long as it takes. We have this sense that somehow there is a specific thing we need to do rather than the greater we. And in the greater we, the intention is to get something to a point or create a possibility. And that may take your lifetime. You might start a journey. It might be someone else's to end. When we think about time in such a linear way, mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense in reality, but somehow we've been squeezing it in. And I think as a leader for me, that just created a massive amount of space. It was like, oh, right, let's share that banquet. Let's all partake in this conversation, this question, and create what it is that needs to happen. That was one of many mirror moments. I also remember hiking up Tiger's Nest. What Tiger's Nest means to people as a ceremony. For me, that was a very powerful moment of letting go. Mm. Maybe you could describe a bit about the beauty of Tiger's Nest and the intention. Yeah. For folks who've seen images of Bhutan, it's that iconic image of a monastery perched on the edge of this impossibly high cliff. And it's one of the most sacred temples in Bhutan, also called Taksang. And it's considered to actually be the center of a mandala. Most people have an idea what a mandala looks like. So Tiger's Nest is a mandala, and you're entering a sacred space when you start hiking up there. And it's really an invitation to connect with your own wisdom. The story of Tiger's Nest is quite magical and mystical as well, that one of the important Buddhist saints in Bhutan, Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava, actually flew to Tiger's Nest on the back of a pregnant tiger. And it's really a powerful story about transformation, about subduing demons, inner and outer, about really transforming the negativities or the shadow sides of your own mind, of your own emotions into wisdom in order to be of service in the world. So that whole mandala, the whole story of Tiger's Nest carries in it this idea of transformation and of working with the shadow, working with darkness in order to bring illumination. So if you come to Tiger's Nest, whether you know it or not, as a tourist or as a pilgrim, you can't help but connect with that transformative energy. And I think if you come with an intention that is really one that is in service of something greater There's a real blessing and a gift in it that I've seen many people come away with some insight or some inspiration. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that you felt touched by that experience in that way. It was an extraordinary way, I think, to conclude the time, you know, in Bhutan, because there was always a sense that it was waiting, you know, it was in, it was in the itinerary. It was, you know, you knew it was coming, you understood the power and intention and, the question like that we held was what is it that we want to transform? What is it that we want to 
gift away to what that is an older version and what is the what is mm. the new and it was a meditative moment and I think so often in the world in the lives we lead we don't create these opportunities for ceremonies and these ceremonies create the power of being witnessed and or witnessing yourself and that possibility of of really shifting because some of the things we've been talking about today are not small you know the inner change is a lifetime journey mm-hmm. these systems shift um we don't really know you know often what our input into that system is going to lead to we talk to small giants about believing that a small mm-hmm. group of citizens or people committed people can really genuinely change the world and we've seen that but it isn't linear it is a mandala of human interaction and uh conversation mm. I often get asked, am I hopeful? Am I an optimist? How do I feel about the future? I think one of the challenges of working in this area is you see the facts. You're constantly reading about what's happening in terms of climate change and all the things that are happening. But at the same time, I think because of my experience of Bhutan and of GNH, there is a sense that we never know what our contribution is doing, what its potential is. You know, it's idea of this magical net of interdependence that's unfolding all the time. And in Bhutan, the word for mind and heart are the same. So it's capturing this idea that our intentions are so powerful. They're the most important, more important than our actions are our intentions because they then shape all the actions that come afterwards. And so if your intention is really bold and and in service and immeasurable, then the benefit that could unfold through interdependence is also immeasurable. And the trick in there is to let go of the uh, wish to see those measurements, to see that change on your watch. You know, that's something that I've been working with over the COVID pandemic is the idea that what I'm doing now who knows? I may not see the consequences. It may be beyond my lifetime, but it doesn't make it any less important. It's what the old Europeans would have talked about as cathedral thinking. It was never one generation that started and finished a cathedral, but you had to be able to visualize that cathedral in your mind and work with it, knowing that it would be finished by another generation. So I think that's how I grapple with this idea of hope and hopelessness. It's actually beyond that. Hope and hopelessness relate to when you're your small self and you want to see things happen in linear time on your watch in ways you can measure and say, I contributed to that. Mm. But it's a much bigger dance. When you're entering that mandala, you're really having to let go of some of those preconceptions and then the possibility becomes much bigger. Mm. I love that. I imagine everyone listening to this is just contemplating that it's a huge thing is what is the thing in us that is most alive that is of service and being true to that amidst a lot of distraction, whether that's what we think we should be doing, what society is doing. Uh, I think the Gross National Happiness Index provides the most extraordinary example of what's possible when a lot of people over a period of time really start to work together to say, let's try and take these higher level intentions about what it is to be human, what it is to live well, to make sure that society is working in balance with nature. Mm. There's no perfect answer to this question, but there is this sense of working together 
and asking these bigger questions and seeing the world as malleable, seeing the world as something that can be shaped by us rather than this kind of fait accompli sense, which we can sometimes feel reading into the newspapers and the news. Mm. Yeah, these pieces. Absolutely. I would say too, it doesn't have to be all big world-changing actions and projects that you're involved with. Just the intentionality and the kindness and the skill that you bring to your relationships with your loved ones, with your family, with your friends, with your neighborhood, all of that starts to become, that's an expression of GNH as well. It's not all about having to change the world tomorrow, but it's really the way that you're living your life, how you're showing up in those very intimate details that all gets magnified by that intentionality. Mm, wonderful. Do you have any advice to people that are really interested to dig in and learn a bit more and see how they can apply some of the ideas you've been sharing today? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's to show up with a sense of curiosity and playfulness. Often people think that it's going to be a really serious mission and that they have to change everything. But sometimes small shifts can happen that actually make a big difference in someone's business or organization. Some people think the measurements are the way to go. They realize there's something in these nine domains that they can apply, maybe not to the whole business at once, but even in the way that they're holding their meetings, even the way that they're creating community in the office, they start to see an area where they can go in that sense. For other people, it's about doing less. There's so many people who come with their to-do list and an arm's length timeline of things that they have to accomplish. And then having the experience that you described in relation to time in Bhutan, there's a letting go that starts to happen and a creating of space. So it's actually more of a letting go process that they're inspired from GNH. For others, it's really about connecting to themselves again. There's something about just being embodied, looking after your own health, taking the time to be in nature again, meditating. A lot of people will start that and continue it after Bhutan those personal transformations that are the start of a whole other journey. So I think there's a whole range of ways that GNH gets applied and taken up and adapted once people experience Bhutan. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it. It's not a one size fits all, but it is that mirror that shines back to you where the areas that uh, you feel maybe there's some tension, there's some room for change. And then what can I let go of and what can I embrace going forward? Mm. I love that. I love that. For me, it was a massive shift in the idea of reciprocity, like really deeply and came just before COVID. And that was very powerful in and of itself, creating circles, women's circles and real deep community. And I love what you said about it being very personal and very different for everyone and, and very multidimensional and really a deeper reflection on what it is to be a human, much more than we can get often in our day-to-day -day lives where we're maybe not creating time to reflect on that. Well, Julia, it has been so beautiful to talk to you. Thank you from all of us at Small Giants and Dumbo Feather for all the incredible contribution you're making in this good ancestor, multi-generational effort, as we've talked about, interconnected effort to really shift society to a much more healthy place that's in balance. We are so grateful to you and to your work.
You can learn more about Dr. Julia Kim and her work with the Gross National Happiness Centre over at gnhcenterbhutan.org. For leaders interested in an immersive experience in this incredible part of the world, Small Giants Academy is running an Impact Safari to Bhutan in 2023. You can register your interest in that and any of our other trips over at impactsafari.com. Thank you.